Now, our scripture reading for today is taken from Romans chapter 12. And today it will not be a long scripture reading. It is only one verse, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So far, the reading of God's word. Now, today, as we have entered Romans chapter 12, and we're focusing in on this very first verse, I promise we won't be spending a sermon per verse in this chapter, though it could warrant it. However, this first verse is such an important verse in all of Scripture, and indeed in the book of Romans. It acts as a pivotal transition. And before we get into it, I have to share with you again a personal story from my time at Bethany Bible College. And it involved a classmate of mine named Matt Dick. Some of you may actually know him because he grew up here in Clarny. In fact, I grew up with him right here attending Sunday school in the same church together for many years. And so we ended up attending Bethany together at the same time. And one day between classes, Matt met me in the hallway and he told me that he'd had this really strange dream that I had been in. And so he wanted to tell me about it. And so we made arrangements that later on that evening, he stopped by my dorm room and he shared this strange dream with me. Now, Matt said that in his dream, he'd been walking down the hallway uh, in school at college when suddenly I had stepped out in front of him directly in a sort of confrontational sort of a way, and I had looked him in the eye and I had said to him, Matt, it's time for you to learn the true meaning of Romans 12 verse 1. And with that, I then turned my back and began to walk away from him. But as I walked away, I had signaled my hands to the shadows, and as I did, two large thugs had jumped out of the shadows, pummeled Matt down to the ground, and proceeded to lay a beating on him. Now, Matt said that as this had all unfolded, he had finally woken up with a jolt covered in sweat. And that line from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, had been playing in his mind. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. <laughs> now, I wasn't quite sure what to make of my somewhat sinister role in Matt's dream. But we had a good laugh about it then, and in fact, it became some, something of a running joke at college, where for the next year or two, uh, if you wanted to jokingly threaten someone, you would kind of go up to them and say to them in your best godfather voice, it's time for you to learn the true meaning of Romans 12 verse 1. And that became a running joke. Now, with that as my intro... Today, I will say to each one of you that it's time for you to learn the true meaning of Romans 12, verse 1. And no, don't worry, there aren't any thugs lurking in the shadows this time. We're going to get our facts straight from God's word. So let's pray as we enter it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious word, for this verse, so profound, so packed with truth. And so we ask once more, Holy Spirit, speak through this word. I ask, speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Now here in Romans chapter 12, we have entered the third and final section of this magnificently rich book 
where the Apostle Paul now begins to focus us in, in this third section, he begins to focus us in on the outcome and the practical application of believing the gospel. Now, in verse 1, as we just read, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, first, I want you to take note of the very first word in the sentence, therefore. Therefore. Now, I was taught that whenever you see the word or read the word therefore in Scripture, you should ask yourself, what is it there for? So that's kind of the play on words. Therefore, what is it there for? Because you see, therefore is a word that's almost always used to connect a preceding thought to its outcome or its application. So here, how Paul is using this word therefore, what it is therefore, is that it's acting as a bridge between all 11 chapters of the previous teaching on God's mercy, and he's now bridging this, connecting it to the outcome of believing the gospel and receiving God's mercy. So therefore is acting as a bridge word, connecting the first 11 chapters with what he is about to share. The second thing I want you to take note of is the second line. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers. I urge you. You see, for Paul, this is not a passive exercise where he is indifferent to the outcome. This is not just a professor giving some sort of boring lecture where he doesn't care if his students are listening or not. No, this is personal for Paul. And in fact, the word urge has the meaning of I plead with you. I'm begging you. So he's he's pleading with his audience, with his readers, saying, I urge you, brothers, pay close attention, sit up, listen, and be ready to obey. Third, I want you to notice that Paul's appeal is personal as he calls them brothers. Now remember... From earlier in our series, we learned that Paul had not yet been able to visit the church in Rome in person. There were a few members in the church that he knew personally from travels elsewhere, but he had never been to Rome as of yet, and so these people are relative strangers to him. He had not yet met them personally, and yet we see that he already considered them as brothers, as sisters in the faith, as family. And even without meeting them, because of the shared faith, he viewed them as brothers. And so, too, I want you to consider that although the Apostle Paul lived and died long before any of us were born, Paul is still our brother in the faith. And that one day in heaven, we will be shoulder to shoulder and arm and arm together with the Apostle Paul before God's glorious throne, worshiping him forever. And so, in this way, though Paul could not have known us personally, as he was born long before us, we must remember that it was the Holy Spirit who was speaking through Paul, giving him this wisdom as he wrote these words. And that Holy Spirit, he knew us, even as Paul wrote those words. Though Paul himself did not know us, the Spirit knew us. And the Spirit knew that one day we would read these words. And so, in this profound spiritual sense... This word brother is for us. Paul views us and we can receive it personally for us. And so when I read this 
What it says to me is, therefore, I urge you, Danny. And likewise, you can write your own name in here above the word brother. Write your own name in the margin and say, this word is from the Spirit through Paul written personally for me. And I'm going to receive it personally. Paul is urging me by the Spirit, listen. Now, fourth, I want you to take note of the combined statement. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, what this means is that for us to offer God our bodies as living sacrifices, this is done as a direct response to God's mercy, which has already been given to us. In other words, we don't live for Jesus in the hope of someday earning God's mercy. This isn't an exercise of of working towards something. Rather, we live for Jesus because we have already received God's mercy. And so therefore, out of grateful hearts, we desire to give ourselves completely to God as living sacrifices and to be obedient to him in order to bring him glory with our lives. In fact, the crux, the whole crux of the Christian life hinges upon the truth, this truth, that the right motivation for all that we think, say, and do in obedience and service to our Lord, the correct motivation is to do it in response of love and gratitude for the incredible mercy and grace that God has already given us in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle John wrote, we love him because he first loved us. You see, God is always the initiator. God is always the giver, and we are the recipient. God is the initiator, and we are the respondents. And so the only question that remains is, how will we respond to God? How will we respond to his mercy? The true story is told that following the Second World War, a missionary named Raymond Davis went to Ethiopia to work with the Walamo tribe. One of the early converts from this tribe was a slave by the name of Tigni. But Tigni's decision to follow Jesus greatly displeased his owner. And his owner further refused to allow Tigni to attend church or study the Bible anymore. Further, he would beat and humiliate Tigni for his faith, trying to get him to reverse and recant from his decision. But Tigni was persistent and resolved. He would not deny his faith or give up the Lord. Now, Tigni's situation was such that if he could only but repay a $12 debt, he could actually buy back his freedom and become a free man. But as a slave with no salary and no means of making a salary, that $12 might as well have been a million dollars. So impossible was it for him to repay However, when the missionary, Raymond Davis, learned that Tigney's freedom could actually be purchased, he immediately went and paid that $12 debt, and he bought his freedom. And so now Tigney was completely free, both spiritually in Christ and now physically set free from that master, that taskmaster of his. And soon after this, however, the missionaries were, 
were expelled by the government from Ethiopia. And a 24-year period passed before Raymond Davis finally had a chance to return to Ethiopia. During this almost quarter of a century, Tigny lived out his strong faith in the testimony and gave testimony to the changing power of Christ in someone's life. But as the years passed by, Tigny's desire to see Davis once again, just to express to him his profound gratitude and appreciation and love for what he had done for him, it just grew in him stronger and stronger with each passing year. And so finally, the day came when he heard that his friend was coming back to Ethiopia. Tigny was simply overjoyed. He was ecstatic. He couldn't wait. But because for Tigny as a tribesman, our dates on a calendar or time on a clock had little to no meaning for him. And so hearing that his friend was going to be traveling to the mission station, he proceeded to every single day from which he had heard the news himself travel to that same mission statement. Day after day, week after week on end, in order to sit there and wait all day to see if this would be the day that his friend would arrive. Finally, after over a month of having done this, the long-awaited day arrived when Raymond Davis showed up in a car driven by a fellow missionary. When Tigny saw the vehicle approaching, he sprinted down the dusty road and towards the car window. And then running alongside the, the car, which was still going quite fast at this point, he reached in through the open window and took Davis's hand and he pulled it up to his lips and began kissing it over and over again. At this point, the driver began to slow the car so that Tigney could keep up running beside it. And as he ran alongside the car, he called out to the onlookers who were gazing upon this spectacle. And he repeated the same thing over and over again. Behold, behold, the one who redeemed me. He has returned. My redeemer is here. And finally, the car came to a stop. Davis got out. And then Tigney dropped down to his knees. He wrapped his arms around his friend's legs, and then he began to kiss his dusty shoes over and over again. Finally, Davis had to reach down and raise Tigney up to full height. And then with tears streaming down both of their faces, they stood with their arms wrapped around each other in a joyful reunion. Now in Tigney's example, we see such a fitting picture of what a genuine response of gratitude and love for one's Redeemer can and indeed should look like. He was so overjoyed, my Redeemer, behold, my Redeemer has come. Now let me ask you, what is your response to your Redeemer? What is your response to Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed you from the taskmaster of sin and Satan and death. What is your response? What is your anticipation like for the day that he will return and you will see him once more? Is your heart responding like Tigny's, filled up with, with sheer joy and gratitude? ready to give sacrificial love and devotion, waiting no matter how long it takes, anticipating his return? Or 
Will you instead respond with a callous heart and with indifference? Because you see, to respond to Christ in this way with with callous indifference, with apathy, with lukewarmness, it means that even if you know all the complex doctrines of Romans perfectly, and even if you can recite them all from memory, you have missed the very heart of the gospel. As Dr. Roy L. Lauren puts it, here in Romans we find that duty follows doctrine. Responsibility follows revelation, and practice follows principle. Unless these things appear in the course and conduct of our daily living, we give the lie to our faith. Their absence tells us that the presence of Christ in us is only a fiction and a pretense. In short, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? For if you've only nodded along in intellectual agreement to the first 11 chapters of Romans, but it has had no tangible impact on your daily life or changed anything about how you live from day to day, then you've missed the point entirely. For you see, God's word, it is not dead words on a page. It is not literature to be studied and dissected. Rather, it is the living word. And further, it must become alive in our hearts by the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit, who further, his primary mission is to transform us more and more into the image of Christ every single day until the day of completion, when we will be glorified forever in his presence. No, this is not a static exercise, my friends. It is dynamic, and it is designed to confront old habits, old patterns, old sins, and change them, root them out, and replace them with the presence and the practice of Christ. And so if these two things are not in sync with each other, something is missing. We can not only agree with the gospel, the gospel must change us. And it never stops changing us until we are in Christ's presence forever. You see, my friends, for the word to have any value, we must not only agree with it in principle, but also in practice by living the word out in daily obedience to our Redeemer and to our Lord. As James chapter 1 verse 22 tells us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, so deceiving yourselves. You see, to be a hearer of the gospel, a nodder to the gospel, but not a doer of the gospel, is to live in self-deception. Later on in James chapter 2, verse 14, continuing this theme, James asks further, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? And to that, James gives the answer a resounding no. No. And he says, For faith without works is dead. Faith without action is not faith at all. There must be fruit in our lives, from the confession of our lips. And now here, for the legalistically inclined minds, I must give this vital reminder. We work from, not for, our salvation. We work from our salvation, not for our salvation. And then the equal yet opposite vital reminder is for the licentious mind. The licentious mind, that is someone that thinks they can just 
punch their ticket to heaven, and then go right on living in sin and indulging in the pleasures of the flesh as though nothing happened, nothing changed. The licentious mind. To them, the reminder is this. That though we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works, the outcome of our salvation is not a selfish life lived for me, myself, and I. The outcome of our salvation is a selfless life which increases in service and faithfulness and diligence living for the glory of God and to bring others to know him. And so when we place these things in their proper order, we can clearly see that the evidence of a changed heart, the the transformation on the inside, the evidence of that is a changed life on the outside. However, if there is no outward change in someone's life, then it is most likely due to there being no inward change of heart. The mind has agreed to some principles, but it has not made that critical 12-inch transfer from the mind down into one's heart. And so here in Romans chapter 12, Paul aims to make it abundantly clear to us, his readers, that having the right beliefs is only the first half of the Christian life. The second half is then living out those right beliefs in daily practice. For you see, having sound doctrine, it's not just a nice box to put a check mark in and then just carry on with unchanged lives. But rather, having sound doctrine is intended to first change our hearts and minds and then change every aspect of our entire lives transform everything that we do and think and say. And further, the gospel and the Christian life is not a bartering system where we come up with a deal to give Jesus, you know, maybe part of a Sunday morning so that we can do whatever we like on Friday night. That's not how it works. No, as Paul puts it, we are to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, this word, offer, is a religious term that was used specifically to describe the bringing and presenting of an animal for a sacrifice on the altar. It means to present something once and for all by placing oneself at the disposal of another, and it carries with it the idea of relinquishing one's grip. The offering is given, open-handed, and it cannot be taken back. The religious Jews would have immediately understood this and what Paul was getting at. That in the law of Moses, a live animal was to be brought to the priest and the owner of the animal who was presenting or giving this offering, he would then lay his hands on the animal to symbolically transfer his sins to the animal and thereby say, this animal is dying for my sins in my place. The animal was then killed with a knife, and its blood was then poured out, caught in a bowl, and sprinkled upon the altar. Paul then takes the familiar image of this bloody sacrifice, of presenting an offering, and he then gives it a sharp twist. And he states first that rather than presenting an animal, he says we are now to present ourselves, to offer ourselves as the living sacrifice. And then second, he gives it a twist that rather than us dying 
as all the animal sacrifices did, we are now to become living sacrifices. Now, what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Well, it means a few different things. First, it means that you can't take it back. Just as an animal sacrifice was a one-time, irreversible offering, that animal wasn't coming back. Once its throat was slit, its blood poured out, it was dead and gone. It was not coming back. And so too, for the owner relinquishing this, it's not coming back. He is offering it. And so too, it's the same when we offer ourselves to God. We give ourselves as a one-time, irreversible offering, something that we can't and won't take back. As Paul said back in Romans chapter 6 and verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And so the old life, we are saying, is dead, and it's gone, and it's not coming back. And now the new life of Christ has come. It's been born in our hearts through faith. And now it must prevail in us and through us. And so we are a living sacrifice. We're not going back. We can't take it back. We are now for Christ and in Christ. Our life is hidden in him. The second thing it means to be a living sacrifice is that we give ourselves every single day as an offering that is holy and pleasing to God. Now, you'll recall that Old Testament sacrifices were to be uh, found without blemish or defect. The, the lamb or the animal had to have no blemishes. You couldn't give the sickly from your herd. You had to give your very best. Well, in like manner, we are to offer to God our very best. We don't give him the least of our time. We don't give him the least of our finances. We don't give him the least of our abilities. No, we give him the very best because he is all. And he deserves the very best from us. He deserves everything in our very lives. And so, we must remember this. This is how we are pleasing to God. In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9, it says of the Old Testament offering, And the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And so in this way, our lives, when we offer ourselves, is to be an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And as God smells the fragrance from our life, he is delighted in us as we are devoted to him. And now having said that, we remember, that as we've learned in Romans, that it's not because of what we have done that makes our aroma pleasing to the Lord. It is because of what Christ has done by dying in our place, being that perfect Lamb of God, the one who took our sin and died in our place so that we could be forgiven and declared righteous and holy before God because the holiness of Jesus Christ has been fully credited to our account and so now we simply live that out every day, every day, every day as a living sacrifice for as many days of life that God will grant us. And this is pleasing to our God. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, we read Paul's life motto. There Paul wrote, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, to be a living sacrifice is in many ways a greater challenge than it is to be a dying sacrifice. 
Now, how can I say that? Well, to be a dying sacrifice means it's a one-shot deal. Either you live for Jesus or you, or you die for Jesus, and when you die, it's over, game over, and it's finished. There's no more tests, no more trials. But to be a living sacrifice, like I just said, means it keeps going day after day, day after day, week in, week out, year in, year out. And sometimes in this grind of life, as we're accosted by Satan and sin and temptation and the trials of this world, our spirits grow weary. And in our service to the Lord, our bodies sometimes grow weary. And our minds grow weary. And in the process, our desire to depart and to be with the Lord grows stronger and stronger. Until finally, like the Apostle Paul, we say, to live is Christ, but to die, oh, that is gain. And so, our minds shift from this life to eternity, knowing that what is to come is far, far greater than anything we have to endure in the days of our lives. The famous story was told by St. Basil of the 40 martyrs of Sebast. And these 40 martyrs were soldiers in the Roman 12th Legion, known as the Thundering Legion. This Thundering Legion served under the reign of the Emperor Licinius in 320 AD. The men were from different countries, but enrolled in the same troop. It was made famous under Marcus Aurelius for the miraculous reign and victory obtained by their prayers. But then orders came from the emperor Licinius for all of them, all troops in the entire army, to make sacrifices to the emperor. However, these 40 soldiers went boldly up to their commander, and they said that they were Christians, and that no torments should make them ever abandon their holy faith, that they would not make an offering to the emperor. And the governor, finding them all resolute in this decision, he caused them to be torn with whips and their sides to be rent with iron hooks. Then the governor, highly offended at their courage and with the liberty of speech with which they accosted him, he devised an extraordinarily cruel kind of death, which being slow and severe, he hoped would shake some of them of their commitment and resolve. Now, it was that the cold in Armenia, where this troop was stationed, is very sharp in the winter season, especially in the early March of which they were a part. And this time had brought about a severe frost. And under the wall of the town stood a pond that was frozen so hard that it could bear walking upon with safety. The governor ordered the 40 soldiers to be exposed quite naked upon the ice. In order to tempt them even more to renounce their faith, a warm bath was then prepared a small distance from the shore. However, these men, hearing their sentence, ran joyfully out upon the frozen lake, and without waiting to be stripped by their guards, they undressed themselves, and all the while encouraging one another in the same manner as is usual among soldiers in the military, attended with hardships and dangers. They said to one another that one bad night would purchase them a happy eternity in the morning. The guards, in the meantime, ceased not to persuade them to give it up and to come to the warm baths that were provided on the shore. However, they all remained resolute, steadfast, all except for one who had the misfortune of being overcome by temptation. However, even as that man came ashore to the bath, the sentinel, who was warming himself nearby, 
As he stood guard, he looked up into the sky and he saw a vision of ministering angels descending from heaven upon the men on the ice. The guard being struck with this celestial vision and then heartbroken at the desertion of the one soldier who would renounce his Lord. In that moment, he believed. He was converted and he threw off his clothes. He walked out upon the frozen lake and he placed himself in the man's stead among the 39 martyrs, restoring their number to a company of 40 men. He was welcomed joyfully by the other 39 men of the Thundering Legion, who encouraged him by saying that, yes, one bad night on earth would purchase him a happy eternity with Christ in the morning. And so these men, they proved again the Apostle Paul's words as true. That to live is Christ, but to die, that is gain. And so therefore, I urge you, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and blameless, for this is pleasing to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we present to you our lives, for that is all that we can give. Holding nothing back, recognizing that we can take nothing back. For when we give it to you, it is a one-way, all-or-nothing deal. But we know that when we give ourselves to you, we are entrusting ourselves to the Creator, God of heaven and earth, and most importantly, our Savior, who has presented to us the one and only way of salvation and to life everlasting. And because we know by your spirit in our hearts that this word is true, we receive it, Lord, not just with our minds, not just with intellectual agreement with our lips, but, Lord, may it come to our very hearts that would burst out forth from us, Lord, that we are your children, that you are our Lord, and that we present ourselves to you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, holding nothing back. We are all yours to do with as you please for as many days as you would give us on this earth, Lord. To live is, to, is, to, to live is Christ, but, O oh Lord, to die is gain, for we will be in your presence forever and ever. And so, Father, bless us and each one with this word today. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his smiling face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. May God bless you richly. Have a very good week, and Lord willing, we'll see you again next Sunday.